Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. Eve McCormick is the co-director of Effective Altruism Cambridge and a grant recipient from the Centre for Effective Altruism. We touched on it in our previous episode with George Rosenfeld, but in this one we dig deeper into the topic of effective altruism. It's history, key arguments, common criticisms, and some concepts which you might find more generally useful. Since there's a pandemic on, this is unsurprisingly a remote episode, so apologies in advance for the dip in audio quality. Hopefully it's all still listenable. Now, without further ado, here's Eve McCormick. Cool. Um, I currently run Effective Altruism Cambridge, um, which is a local group of the international community Effective Altruism, um, which I've been doing since about September 2018. So we're going to be talking about effective altruism. How do you sum up effective altruism in a few sentences to begin with? Um, so effective altruism kind of has two parts. Um, there's the like intellectual project, which is the idea of figuring out how you can do as much good as possible with your resources. Um, so that could be your time um, or your money primarily. And then the second part is the practical element, which is then trying to act on what you found out. And just briefly, what kind of arguments or examples have you found uh, motivate people the most to get interested in this? Um, so again, you can kind of split it up into the effective and the altruism part. Um, with the altruism part, um, people can often become aware of like the amount of suffering in the world um, beyond, I guess, what's immediately on their doorstep. So um, one key thought experiment is the um, Peter Singer's drowning child thought experiment. Um, this idea that, um, so the thought experiment, um, you've got someone walking along, they're in a very nice suit, they have an expensive phone in their pocket, they see a child drowning in a pond or a lake, Um most people probably aren't going to say, well, I'm wearing a very expensive suit. I have a very expensive phone in my pocket. Um, I'm not going to jump. I'm going to like think that these material things that I spent money on are more worthwhile than saving this life. Um, yeah, so Singer's argument was that there are these drowning children in the world all the time. And all the time we're making these decisions to prioritize um buying nice clothes or um technology or whatever else it might be yeah so often people when they first get involved with effective altruism they hear this thought experiment um they suddenly become very aware of their like ability to um, make a difference to people's lives with their decisions um the fact that there are these drowning children many miles away um, and they might not be visible doesn't necessarily mean that they can be ignored. Yeah, so I think that's that's a, a key motivating factor for the altruism part. Yeah, let's focus on this drowning child example. So everyone would agree that it is obviously and non-heroically right, even, you know, required of us to jump into that shallow pond and save the drowning child if you had an opportunity to do so, right? 
Um, then you said that there are people in the world right now who we have an equivalent opportunity to help or even save. Um, so can you explain what you mean by that? Because that might just sound straightforwardly wrong to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I guess in simple terms, there are children and people of all ages dying of um, preventable causes all around the world. Um, so this might be easily present preventable diseases that um, a small amount of money relative to the money that many people in the Western world have um, could like cure or alleviate um, for a small amount of money, which is perhaps comparable to the amount of money that you would spend on like the phone or the suit that you would destroy by jumping into a pond or, or much less than that potentially. Cool. And I guess it's a trivial point, but it's worth mentioning as well that a long time ago, this might have involved traveling to a different place to do this and directly helping different people. But nowadays the internet exists, right? So if you're listening to this podcast, then you are almost certainly five or 10 minutes away from making a donation to one of these charities, um, which means that we're in an analogous position to standing by the side of this pond and watching the drowning child and knowing we have an opportunity to help them because it's not only possible to donate money to effective charities, it's also really easy. Are there any other arguments or examples that um, you found motivate people to get interested? Yeah, so that's the case for um, people thinking more about other people, including those they can't see. Um, then there needs to be further motivation, I guess, for thinking about these things in an effective way, um, which is where effective altruism comes in. And one of the key arguments that effective altruism made in the early days especially was that some of these charities that you could donate to to um, rescue these uh, metaphorical drowning children could be like orders of magnitude more effective in doing so than other charities trying to do the same thing. So for that donation, you could um, assist like 10 plus more children or other people. Um, and I think most people assume that charities are like roughly as good as each other if they think about it. I think there's some um, survey data on this. So for a lot of people, when they are confronted with examples of charities really not working or um, they see um, trials for interventions that just make a much larger difference than others, then it occurs to many people that if you care about helping people, you care about saving these drowning children and you could save more of them, then choosing the option that's going to allow you to do that makes sense. And and this links in a lot to what we discussed with uh, George Rosenfeld uh, back in the episode about cause selection, and in particular, the uh, highly effectiveness of the Against Malaria Foundation. Um, could you give an example of where one charity is orders of magnitude more effective than another one? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of charities that get used as examples quite a lot as um, harmful ones which are maybe the strongest example of how, without careful thinking, a charity can go wrong. So 
one big one is the play pumps charity which was very big in the noughties um got a lot of celebrity backing had its own like massive fundraiser and this was a charity that tried to design like roundabouts for children that would pump water um so the children play on the roundabouts water is pumped up saves people time and effort the children get to have a nice toy seems on the face of it very nice did very well got a lot of um donations but then when someone actually looked into it um they 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 actually talked to the people who were using the play pumps um and found that it was actually causing quite a bit of harm um so for example a lot of the time the children didn't want to be playing on it it was really heavy like a roundabout is meant to work so that you just spend a bit of time running around and then um away you go and you don't have to keep pushing it forever but this this one you had to push it the whole time you were on it um so this often meant that just the local women were pushing this roundabout round which was a lot more annoying than using a traditional pump um a lot more costly yeah and there are a bunch of other problems too so this is quite a strong example of how an idea that sounds really great um sounds really emotionally persuasive when it doesn't have the evidence behind it um, showing that it's actually effective can potentially cause more harm than good or nowhere near as much good as you think it will. Yeah, that sounds sensible. And I guess the point I get from that is that the warm glow you get from thinking about or donating to a charity needn't line up with the actual effects it might have. And in fact, it might actually be harmful. And the way you find that out isn't by reflecting on how good it makes you feel. It's by um, looking quite seriously um, at the kind of practical implications of this charity. So that's an example of a potentially harmful um, charity. But what might be even more effective for motivating this point is just to mention the charity or charities that are really surprisingly effective. What do they do, for instance? Can you give an example? Yeah. Um, so one really effective charity, perhaps this was mentioned, um, in the interview with George, um, is the Against Malaria Foundation, um, which distributes insecticide treated bed nets. And the, the estimates for how effective this is in terms of how many donations translate into one extra person being alive, um, they, it varies a bit. It's gone up and down a bit over time. I think currently it might be somewhere around three and a half thousand dollars, um, give or take a thousand or so, either direction. Yeah, which to many people sounds like a lot of money because we're very used to seeing all these adverts telling you that you can just donate three pounds um, and save this child from hunger, um, which is, when you think about it, fairly obviously wrong. You can't like feed a child forever on three pounds. So when you actually um, look at how much how much money it costs to save a life who wouldn't otherwise be saved if you didn't make that donation, um, saving that life for like $3,000 is, is pretty good going. 
So, so far, we've kind of talked about the two um, pillars of effective altruism. So on the one hand, motivating people to see how much potential there is uh, to, to save these drowning children or to, to do good in this world. And on the other hand, the importance of doing so effectively by really thinking about what causes we want to get involved in. So then the question becomes, um, what does EA um, help people do and engage in these topics um, like on a on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so EA is a community of people who care deeply about these questions. It's a community that tries to support each other to um, do high quality research into figuring out the answers so one question is what like problems in the world should we be focusing on um where we can do as much good as we can with our resources another question is within a particular problem area what is the most effective intervention is there anything we can do at all and then how do those problem areas compare to each other and how did um, EA come about as an organisation? What's the the history of it? So lots of the ideas that are now really key to EA have been circling for quite a long time. Um, so, for example, um, I mentioned Peter Singer earlier. His work on um, global poverty and animal rights was around in like the seventies, um, and then in the like early noughties, you had some. Um, adjacent organizations to EA springing up um, around other areas that are now key to EA. So for example, there's the Future of Humanity Institute, I think we'll come on to um, that kind of stuff later, which was founded in 2005. And then you had the charity evaluator GiveWell founded in 2007. And this was all before the label effective altruism existed, um, before there was like a cohesive community around these ideas. Um, But when it really kind of started to exist in its current form that was um, with the foundation of an organization called giving what we can in 2009 Um, giving what we can encourages people to commit to giving a pledge of 10 percent of their income to whatever charities they think are most effective Um, and that was founded by um, two guys called will mccaskill and toby ord and then for a while you had giving what we can and give well existing alongside each other using like slightly different um, approaches to how they were thinking about evaluating charities. And in the end, um, a load of the researchers from giving what we can moved over to give well, give well sort of became part of the same community um, and giving what we can stop doing its, its own research about ranking um, the effectiveness of global health charities as it was then. On that note, could you actually explain um, what GiveWell sets out to do? I guess um, GiveWell try to be the place where donors can go um, big and small to see where is the best place for them to be putting their money. Um, Primarily if they're donating to charities in the global health um, kind of sector. So they have like a bar that charities have to reach in order to be considered um, like effective enough to get on their top list, um, which is a pretty high bar. So I guess they could they can be um, considered in comparison to other charity evaluators that exist. The main one that I know of is called Charity Navigator, 
um, which covers a much larger group of charities um, and ranks them, I think, based on the proportion of donations that goes toward overhead. Um, but GiveWell was much more interested in thinking about what are the actual outcomes from the work that each charity does? How much good are they actually doing per like dollar of donations? And if you're listening to this, you can go to givewell.org and read all about it there. So we've talked a lot about uh, the importance of kind of choosing the right causes. And so far, we've kind of framed this in the idea of giving money. But another thing um, that might be especially relevant to a lot of young people is um, kind of shaping your own career and dedicating um, your own time, um, whether that be through volunteering or uh, through through the jobs you do in the future, about really making sure that you work on causes that do the most good. Um, how does EA kind of um, set up a framework to help you identify what causes deserve the, the most attention? Yeah, um, so there's a few different frameworks that are used by various different organizations um, for thinking about this in the effective altruism community. There's one um, main one, which is particularly good for giving like a rough starting point, um, which gets called the ITN framework sometimes, um, but has several other terms. So ITN stands for importance, tractability and neglectedness. So to go through that, um, importance maybe is a bit of a misleading word. I prefer to understand it in terms of primarily scale. So what's the scale of the problem? Um, the larger the problem, the more likely it is that more people should be working on it or donating to organizations working on it. Um, the second element, tractability, is just the same as um, how potentially solvable the problem is. Um, where solvable, I guess, doesn't necessarily mean um, within a few years this will be completely fixed so we won't have to worry about it anymore. Probably it can be better understood as how likely is it that we can make um, considerable progress on this problem. And then neglectedness is looking at the world as it currently is, how many resources are being dedicated towards this problem area. And the thought is that the more neglected an area is, the more impact that an additional um, number of donations or number of people working on this area can have. Um, because if the, an area is really crowded, then you're probably going to start to see diminishing returns. I guess more generally, thinking about neglectedness and tractability and importance can just be really useful when you're deciding where to spend money or how to use your time. I've found myself thinking about it quite a lot since uh, learning about it. So let's try and apply that kind of framework to a couple of causes um, that, are, that are very much in the, in the headlines at the moment. So could you walk us through how uh, NTI might possibly apply to topics like animal welfare? Yeah, so animal welfare. Um, there are a lot of animals in the world and animal welfare, is, as it's considered in EA, can, can refer to all kinds of animals. Um, so very often it's to do with um, factory farming, but there are also people thinking about wild animal suffering. Um, so if you, if you think of even just all of the animals that are living on factory farms, that's like 60 billion chickens or something a year. Um, 
killed in factory farms or something like that. So it's like an astronomical number. Um, so improving animal welfare seems like very big in scale. Then how solvable it potentially is to make progress on. Um, well, with factory farming, it seems like approaches involving advocacy and technology for better alternative foods um, seem like they are reasonably likely to reduce the amount um, of like meat people eat and that can reduce demand for um, the number of the amount of livestock in factory farms. Other, other aspects of animal welfare may be less um, obviously um, solvable but there's there's a small number of people doing research into into possible approaches in that direction. Um, and then neglectedness. So it, it might seem that there are a lot of people who um, care about animals and animal welfare and promoting things like veganism at the moment. Um, although I think this is much more the case since um, something like 2015 than before that. I think we've seen quite a rapid growth. Um, but generally, if you look at the like donations made to animal related causes things like factory farming are very neglected compared to other areas like um animals in shelters i think that's where the vast majority of donations from people in the us for example goes to yeah that so that's that's animal welfare so so just on um animal welfare as well i think that is definitely a topic as well which links to another concept um that ea pays a lot of attention to and that's expanding the moral circle uh can you talk about that as well yeah i guess another reason for optimism with making progress in animal welfare is this idea of moral circle expansion um so if we look back into history we can see that what things are considered moral has changed um within many societies so um a very big example would be slavery was considered okay by many people for a long time. Now it's considered abhorrent by the majority of people. Um, other things would be like gay marriage or women's rights. Um, so there's lots of things where we've we've begun to kind of expand our empathy beyond people who are similar to us. Um, and start to want to give more rights and recognition to to a wider group of people. Um, and th this like makes sense as a concept, like evolutionary. It makes sense that we would like prioritize taking care of people within our own tribe. But that kind of moral code doesn't seem on the face of it to make sense for the modern day. So given that we've made this moral progress, expanding our moral circle um, so far, Peter Singer made the argument that we should ideally be able to expand our moral circle to animals as well. So he coined the phrase, uh, the, the term speciesism, um, and argued that this is just the same as sexism and racism. It's one group um, oppressing another group. So... Given that we've made that progress in the past with regards to other um, groups of people, 
then then maybe we could do the same for animals and yeah other beings yeah so i guess one obvious way why enabling a charity to help someone on the other side of the world is unlike directly helping um the drowning child is just geographical proximity and i guess the related fact that you might expect the drowning child to be part of your local community. And the idea here seems to be that in the ultimate case, facts about geography or relatedness are just not morally relevant considerations. There's no good reason for weighing the interests of a person less uh, just by dint of their living on a different continent um, or being unrelated to you. Um, obviously, it, it might sometimes be easier to help someone close to us, but holding how easy it is to help those people fixed, it just seems pretty obvious that we have strong reasons to help far away strangers whenever we have strong reasons to help people close to us. right? And the idea of the expanding moral circle is, I guess, that the scope of interests people are willing to take seriously Um, has, roughly speaking, expanded over time as those arbitrary considerations have gradually fallen away, right? And Singer hopes, of course, that this imaginary circle will continue to expand beyond the bounds of the human species. Um, But I guess an interesting thought is that you can look back at history and see how, at any given time, virtually everyone even the supposedly smartest people in the world, just gave no second thought to transparently abhorrent practices. Of course, it would be surprising if that trend just stops with our generation, right? So it's a natural thing to wonder whether there's anything we take for granted or just fail to notice, which our ancestors will realise is really morally indefensible. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So another key concept for effective altruists is counterfactual reasoning. Can you explain what that means and why it's useful? Yeah. So earlier when I was talking about um, the estimation for the um, the size of donation it would take to save a life by donating to the Against Malaria Foundation, um, that calculation is working out um, how much it would cost to save a life that that is counterfactual. So this means one that would not have otherwise, um, some, so allowing someone to live who would not otherwise have lived. So it costs a lot less than that to give someone a malaria net. Um, way, way less, like a few dollars um for like two years but not everyone is gonna like get malaria not everyone who gets malaria dies um so in order to to stop one person who would otherwise have got malaria and died you need to cover a lot of people for a long time um and this this idea of counterfactual reasoning comes up um in a lot of different places it seems really important if you're trying to work out what actually is doing good to assess well what would have happened if I hadn't taken that action even if you do something that 
that appears to produce a really good outcome if it would have happened anyway then it it seems like wasted effort can you give an example of something which really feels like you're doing good but um counterfactually turns out that you're not doing so much good yeah um this can come up in people's careers sometimes um so lots of people when they think about um all this suffering in the world they feel it very strongly they want to go and work on the front lines in a charity um and yeah they might feel like they're doing a lot of good um they're seeing a lot of good happening as a result of their actions but it may be that someone else could have come along and taken that position and done as good a job or better so the counterfactual difference of them taking that job um could be like close to zero um this is definitely not always going to be the case um i think it's quite easy to overstate how replaceable someone could be in a job often if you get a job you you might be the best person to do it and that might be worth it um but it's not it's not quite as simple as just you took this job therefore you are producing all this value because it it might have happened anyway We've talked about um, animal welfare, and that seems to be, I think, for a lot of uh, people, especially now where it's become more of a of an issue, um, maybe an, an obvious example. But uh, and, and and likewise for other areas such as global poverty or global health, these are clearly issues that we should be tackling. But one thing I was very surprised about when I was uh, finding out more about EA is quite how much attention gets paid to long term risks and existential risks. Um, can you talk a bit about a what those risks are and b um, why EA spends so much time thinking about them? Yeah. So to start off with long termism, um, this is the idea that um, the long term future, so the future beyond the next fifty, hundred years, um, should matter in our moral reasoning. Um, this could be a weak long termism where we think that it should matter to some amount, we should consider it alongside other factors, or it could take a stronger form where we think that the value of the long-term future dwarfs everything else that is in the present. Um, and there's there's lots of potential arguments in favour of long-termism. Um, one would be if you think the future is really big and really full of potential, whether that's in the form of like lots of people leaving ha- leading happy lives or um, lots of great achievements for humanity, um, then losing that potential in some way could be really bad. Um, and that's that's where the concept of existential risk comes in. So an existential risk um, is defined by the Oxford philosopher Nick Bostrom as a risk that either would rid us of that future potential by like destroying all humans um, or by drastically curtailing our potential to like achieve those good things. Um, And some existential risks are like quite familiar to people generally. So um, risks from nuclear war um, will be very familiar to some people, something to be concerned about. Also, potential um, extreme risks from climate change as well. And then there are there are some that 
are perhaps less familiar to some people. I think right now people are, are much more aware of biological risks. Um, so this could take the form of a natural pandemic like we're now experiencing, but um, a much more extreme version that puts humanity at risk. Um, or it can come in the form of some kind of accident where in a lab um, something gets out um, that shouldn't and then causes similar or worse effects. Or it could be a, a deliberate attack, so some kind of bioterrorism um, where an engineered pathogen is designed to very quickly kill a large proportion of humanity or all of humanity such that it can't recover. So that's that's bio-risk in brief. And then another big area that, again, I think is like becoming more familiar to people is um, risks from artificial intelligence. And again, this could come in several forms. So um, one big risk is artificial intelligence. We're seeing it like do more and more stuff. Um, it might be that it reaches a stage where it's um, equivalent intelligence to human intelligence. That gets called artificial general intelligence. And then at that point, it may be very easy for an AI to become more intelligent than humans very quickly and gain a lot of power, be able to do a lot of stuff beyond what we can conceive of at the moment. Um, one big concern is that um, it's not necessarily going to be the case that the goals of such an AI would be aligned with what we want them to be, with human morality and wishes and objectives. Um, but there are other risks um, that maybe are perhaps more likely. It depends on um, which, which researcher you ask to do with having these really powerful technologies um, in the hands of just a small group of people where you could um, create a totalitarian um, world that's very hard to displace once you've got this, this massive power imbalance. Um, it also could just generally increase nations' destructive capabilities and then act as like a intensifier for the other existential risks. So I think one useful thing to kind of clarify here as well is that um, whilst we might perceive the probabilities of these things occurring to be relatively low, um, because they could have such widespread consequences and affect so many people in the future, it's still worth considering. So even if I were to say um, work on helping prevent biohazards and no biohazard ever you know, really comes about and realizes itself, it's still really important to have people working on these topics because if something does happen, then you really want to have uh, people be prepared for it. Yeah. I guess another way of um, framing long-termism is to think back to the expanding moral circle and just to appreciate that if you can't see a good reason why um, geographical proximity should matter ultimately why someone's moral worth shouldn't be determined by which country they live in which is pretty obviously true right then you're going to struggle to come up with a reason why um someone living in a different time from us um should also matter less so the thought you might get from that is that 
discounting the absolute worth of future lives or future welfare um, really doesn't make sense, right? And I guess that can make the thought of massively prioritizing existential risk reduction and long-termism um, sound a little bit less weird and a little bit less kind of um, counterintuitive than it definitely does when people first hear about it. Yeah, I think it does in many ways align with people's intuitions. Um, I think people do very often feel that they don't want to like pass on a really terrible world to future generations. Um, and maybe it's it's more intuitive when you're thinking of future generations in the sense of like your your own descendants or people within the next hundred years but I guess once you start to go down that path of well I care about those people um so so why shouldn't you care about their children as well and so on um so we've talked a lot about how charities can vary so differently in effectiveness and then one question is okay so why do um these uh, ineffective charities still get so much attention, uh, whether that be through celebrity endorsements or through donations. Uh, can we uh, untackle uh, that kind of phenomenon? Yeah, there are people doing research into this, the, the psychology of effective altruism and effective giving. Um, so I'm sure they'll be able to come up with much um, more evidence-based ideas than I can. Um, so I guess this is just based on my impressions of the world and talking to people i think it's just not normalized yet to think of charity um as something that you want to make sure you get like the most bang for your buck so it's, it's very normal to think about things like um purchases that we make for ourselves in these ways like when i'm buying like a new phone i spend a long time trying to figure out which is the best one um, and whether I should spend a bit more to get a bit more out of it. Um, and I think that's quite normal. Um, or I don't know if you're buying a dishwasher or something, this all, this all um, makes a lot of sense. But when you're donating to a charity, I think people think of it just in a, in a different way. It's like giving to charity is good. Charities are a good thing. Um, so you don't need to think too hard about it. I think this is just the way that we talk about charity in our society on the whole. So, yeah, it makes sense that people don't don't think too hard. If, if they do want to pick a charity, um, it makes a lot of sense that people want to pick things that are close to their heart, um, things that have affected, like a charity is working on problems that have affected people they know, partly because I think Finn mentioned that warm glow that you feel um, and maybe donating to charities that affect people that you can more easily imagine better gives you that warm glow and I also don't want to say that that's that's a bad thing at all I think there's there's plenty of room in the world for for different kinds of charitable giving but the hope of the effective giving movement is that more people will shift towards giving more of their donations in a, an effective way. I guess also charitable giving has a kind of signalling function and we can think back to our episode with Dan Williams who talked about this, um, which is you might give to a charity in part to demonstrate to other people or maybe even yourself 
that you're the kind of person who gives to a charity. Um, and since most people presumably don't agonise over evidence and effectiveness in this context, and maybe care more about the cosmetics, um, that in turn might provide a kind of spurious reason to yourself care less about effectiveness, right? Like a fundraiser for a doggy sanctuary is just going to get more likes and appreciative comments than a fundraiser for the schistosomiasis control initiative or something. Um, but one way you might fix that is if you reach some critical mass where enough people really do care about effectiveness and charity evaluators and so on. In other words, when some ideas from effective altruism are no longer kind of weird or novel views and no longer need a special label. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, definitely. Now, uh, it sometimes seems a bit odd or specious or plain impossible to measure a charity's impact because that involves measuring some notion of good, which you might think is subjective or unmeasurable for some other reason. What do effective altruists have to say about that worry? Yeah, this is definitely a tricky thing. Um, and I think that most people in effective altruism, if not everyone, would agree that you can't you can't boil all of doing good down into numbers. Perhaps I'm wrong, but this is this is my um, my feeling. Um, at the end of the day, when you're deciding like which cause to prioritize, there's always going to be value judgments, um, things that come down to ethics and philosophy, and not so much economics. But if you decide that you do care care about a given thing, so that might be um, the welfare of people. Um, not restricted to people in the same country or the same time as you. When you break it down into the concept of, well, I could help, I could help one of these people, or I could help like ten of these people, and they're all the same, and nine more people being helped seems good. Then, to me at least, it no longer seems so sort of cold and calculating to be to be putting numbers on things. It seems like a way of ensuring that you help more people and then there are there are these problems and difficulties with well how do you measure um the outcomes that you're going for how do you measure welfare um of people how do you balance number of lives saved with quality of life um and again perhaps there's some kind of um value judgment that comes in there but the numbers are never going to be perfect but it still seems worth trying particularly when you could have orders of magnitude more impact if you choose one option over another option on that point the thought of just maximizing lives saved or people helped can also sound a bit iffy like you might think that saving lots of lives is really great but saving twice as many lives isn't obviously twice as great um one helpful reframing here, which makes it a bit more obvious that numbers really are worth caring about, is that where you have a fixed number of people, um, doubling the number of lives saved or cases of malaria prevented or whatever it is, is the same as halving the chance that a randomly chosen individual 
will die or contract malaria, etc. Um, and I found that quite helpful. Yeah, I think particularly because people often um, find it easier to imagine the individual, um, which charities know very well and make use of with their um, in their fundraising efforts. It's much you get the warm glow much more if you're thinking about um, one person, real or not, that you that you're helping with your efforts. And it's it's quite hard to think of like a thousand times that person. So yeah, if if <laughs> if that's a way of making it feel more salient, then that's that's good. Cool. So I can imagine um, someone listening to this now, and they might be kind of curious about getting involved with effective altruism. Um, so I'm wondering, what is the best way to start thinking about having a personal impact? Um, so we've talked quite a lot already about donations. If you're um, a UK graduate and you're earning the average salary, then over a 40-year career, uh, if you donate to the Against Valeria Foundation, I think you can save like around 100 lives, doing pretty well. But for maybe most people, what you can um, use as a, the biggest lever to do good is your career. Um and there's a lot of different options for how you can use your career to do good. Uh, it depends a lot on the person as an individual, what their strengths are, how they compare to other people who are also trying to do good um, and pursuing similar cause. Um, so there's this concept of your comparative advantage, which is what your advantage is compared to other people who are trying to achieve the same ends. So you might have two people who are similarly good at one thing, but one of them's also really good at this extra thing um, that is really useful for working on a particular problem. And then they should probably do that, even if they're even if they're ultimately better, maybe at the other skill. Um, if there if there are fewer people who have this less common skill, then maybe they should put that to to good use. Um, so that's just just one way of thinking about um using your career for impact okay and and how um might people um get involved with ea organizations then to to help um apply themselves in these areas yeah so if you're interested in donations um how you can use your donations to as much good as possible one place we said earlier you could go to was um giveworld.org they primarily um evaluate charities working in the global health space. Um, if you're interested in donating to animal welfare related charities, there's um, an organization called Animal Charity Evaluators, which does what it says on the tin. There are also a bunch of funds um, called EA funds, um, which have um, researchers deciding where to grant the money in those pots too um so if you particularly want to donate to um the long-term areas then you can go to ea funds and donate some money into the ea long-term pot and then some researchers working at organizations that that are trying to prioritize um between like long-term areas or like working on like mitigating existential risks um will yeah do their best to put that money where it's most needed at, at that time. Um, 
And then for career stuff, um, the main organization in effective altruism that's currently um, researching impactful careers is an organization called 80,000 Hours that's named after the average number of hours that someone has in their career, which is quite daunting, but I think emphasizes how significant a resource it is for people to do good. Um, so if you go to 80,000 Hours, you can read their key ideas series. Um, and they talk about um, concepts like comparative advantage, which I mentioned, but also many other um, factors that are good to consider if you're thinking about how you can use your career to do as much good as possible. So I'm curious on this topic, um, what exactly you do? Yeah, so I run a local effective altruism group. Um, as I said at the start, effective altruism is this big international community um, one big part of trying to do lots of good with your life is having a good support network for that who can who you can check your ideas with um, and give you like emotional support because like thinking about doing good can be quite challenging um, a lot of the time so there are lots and lots of national and regional and local groups um, of people within the community. Um, so I um, run the Cambridge one. A lot of my time is spent on talking to individuals about their careers, um, offering like personalized feedback on their thinking for, for how they can use their own skills for working in these various areas and also thinking about what area they want to focus on. So I guess quite a typical reaction for a lot of people um, having heard about all of this is to say this is all really great i have a lot of respect for those people who give over big chunks of their career or their income to effective causes but the thought of making like a decision to do that myself that is way too daunting for me um so i'm curious what do you think of the the main psychological barriers to getting involved with all of this and how do you think those barriers might be lifted in the future yeah um so one thing is that it, it feels very overwhelming for many people um particularly when you come across things like the drowning child argument um it feels like oh no suddenly I should be like thinking really hard about every single um decision I make involving money um which is stressful and probably not a sustainable way to live your life. Um, so I think one thing is really emphasizing that it's about like balance. Um, if you like burn yourself out worrying about these things, then you're not gonna like do very much good in the long run anyway. Um, and also your personal well-being matters as much as anyone else's does. And yeah, and I think for a lot of people, after a while of being involved, they, they find where this balance is for themselves. Um, they work out budgets for how much like money and time they're going to think about what they should be doing with their spending. And then they're going to work within um, that framework. So that's why organizations like giving what we can exist, suggesting like a 10% pledge, 10% um, of your income. M many people give more than that. 
but it's it's good to have kind of guidelines so you're not left sort of fretting over every decision so that's one thing it's worth pointing out that none of this is aimed at um making people feel a sense of guilt yeah because guilt makes you feel miserable and it also doesn't really motivate you um very effectively to do anything it's probably better to think about it as like this enormous opportunity that you've just discovered to like make an make a big difference that you didn't previously know about and that's something worth getting um excited about rather than kind of guilty about yeah absolutely so another another barrier might be the like social expectations of the kind of things that you that other people think you would be doing with your life um many of the like impactful careers might be a bit more unusual some of them are very conventional like um, maybe you take a position in the civil service or something um, which can give you like a lot of influence over um, resources but maybe you do something a bit weirder like I'm doing and you just like run a student society full-time um and that might look a bit weird to people yeah I don't know if I have good solutions for for getting past that I guess um being clear about your reasoning and your intentions and finding ways to explain that to the people around you um is is perhaps one way to to get past that yeah and then another thing is if you're focusing on um working on problems where the people that you're trying to help or the beings you're trying to help are not like in front of you um they're really far away or they don't exist yet then you don't always have that same warm glow um from making donations or working hard on something and i think again this is something that kind of develops with time i think when you're working on like thinking about how to help people a hundred years in the future, the more you think about it, the more it can become really real um, and emotional to you. And the more that that like warm glow comes back and the more that it matters less that you can't actually see your impact quite yet. So that is, I guess, very useful uh, information for people who are already convinced um, by, by what you've been saying and want to translate this into action. But there are also some, some common criticisms that occur when we talk about uh, EA, um, either in terms of uh, how to do good or even those like philosophical uh, underpinnings. Um, can you talk about uh, some of the common criticisms that you incur when you try to pitch EA to people? Yeah. So one thing... I think we touched on earlier was that EA can come across as quite cold um, because it largely deals with numbers and people often think about charity as a thing that's to do with um, feelings um, and like people. Um, I guess I've, I've talked about how I think that like feelings and people and numbers all, all tie very well together, but yeah, um, not everyone feels that way. Um, Another impression that people sometimes have is that EA is sort of treating the symptoms of problems rather than addressing the causes um, and that it doesn't work enough on systemic change. And I think this criticism primarily just means that the community isn't doing a good enough job of communicating what EA is actually about. Um, I think it's probably true that in the early days, we were primarily focused on things that were 
more easily measurable um, things like um, distributing bed nets and um, deworming tablets and things like that that are more perhaps treating the symptoms. But there's also a lot of focus on the bigger questions now. Um, so I mentioned earlier that one of the the potentially really impactful career areas is working in policy um, and directing policymakers' decisions. And another of the like cause areas that we we haven't mentioned yet um, that is maybe about as um, systemic changey as you can get is the idea of working on improving institutional decision making, um, which is one of the areas that the organization 80,000 Hours prioritizes. Um, so this is the idea of just making decisions, um, sorry, making institutions um, make decisions that are more evidence-based. And this is like a big meta problem that if you can make progress on can have ripple effects across lots of different areas. Um, so those are the things I would point to. Yeah, I guess one more thing um you might be worried about is that the ideas of effective altruism are just way too demanding to the point of being unrealistic and then you might think well look if these ideas are unrealistically demanding then i might as well kind of not get involved in the first place does that make sense and do you have something to say to that yeah um i i definitely think that makes sense as a, a first impression I guess it's important to highlight that going back to the definition of effective altruism at the start, there's there's nothing in there that's trying to set an obligation to do a certain amount. It's more descriptive. It's like this this question of how can we do as much good? Um, it's not saying you must, in all of your decisions, then follow the conclusions that you reach about how you can do as much good as possible. Um, it's more, um, as you were saying before, this is an opportunity that you can choose to take um, if you want to. And I think, yeah, as as I said, most people in the community would say that this is this is all about balance. Um, trying to improve the world as much as possible is like one goal, one goal that you might have. Um, it might be one of your main goals in life, but you probably also have other goals. Those other goals are also important. People in the community are also pursuing those goals um, and the amount of time and effort that you assign to each goals is up to you. And then another thing is that, as I said, lots of the like suggestions might not actually be that demanding. So donating 10% of your income kind of sounds like a lot, but it's also a very um, well-established um, proportion. Like lots of religious communities donate 10%. Um, and for like most people in the UK on a graduate salary, that's really um, not that hard to do. You still um, have plenty left over. And for many of the the career options that you might take, they they could be things that you you might want to do anyway, um, like work in the civil service or some kind of research position or lots and lots of supporting roles in organizations doing important things um, where you can increase the amount of impact those organizations can have. I guess also worth mentioning that there's a lot of evidence, and this is not surprising evidence, that 
um, volunteering or giving away your time and money um, makes you feel really good about yourself. So it might be the case that just at the margin, if you're deciding whether to like buy a fancy new pair of shoes or give money to charity, um, it might be best for you as well as for other people to take that latter option, right? In other words, this isn't necessarily a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So we've just got two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is, what significant thing have you changed your mind about recently? Yeah, I think changed my mind is a bit too strong for this. But um, over the past year or so, I think I've become a bit more confident that um, reducing existential risk should be my top priority um, for my career. And I've also become a bit more concerned about the like extreme risks from climate change. Not that I wasn't already concerned about climate change, but um, that the the risks of um, the increase in temperature being like at the higher end of the um, estimates and the the like various ripple effects from that. Yeah. Okay, great. And now the last question, which we ask all our guests is, what three books or articles or films or whatever would you recommend for anyone who wants to learn more about this? Um, so these are not necessarily the very best ways of, of um, getting an overview of effective altruism. I think um, effectivealtruism.org is the best place to start for that. Um, but three things that I particularly like. So there's a book called Strangers Drowning by Larissa McFarquhar, which has like has chapters on a range of people who have done really impressive altruistic things with their lives um there's a couple of chapters on people in the ea community but also lo lots of other people doing all kinds of stuff and i thought that was really motivating secondly the new book the precipice by toby ord um so if you want the most up-to-date um, in-depth overview of existential risk and the long-term future and why you should care about it and all the different risks then I think that's the place to go um, I haven't actually read it yet because my copy is locked away in an office that I can't get to um, <laughs> but I've heard that it's very good and surprisingly like optimistic it is very good um, and then finally um, there's an article by um, someone called Julia Wise, who works at the organization, the Center for Effective Altruism, which is like the umbrella community organization for effective altruism. Um, and she's the community health liaison. Um, and she has an article called When Is Your Help Special on her blog called Giving Gladly. And this is about thinking about like when you should be maybe thinking about um, using your time to help people in the world far off from you and when it makes sense to think about the people close to you and, and striking that balance. So I think that's really helpful too. That was fantastic. Eve McCormick, thank you very much. Thanks. That was Eve McCormick on effective altruism. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash eve there you'll find links to eve's recommended reading and all the other sites she mentioned 
And just as a general note, since there's been some confusion about this, our write-ups are not transcripts of the interviews. They're more like standalone mini articles that jump off from the interview to further discussion. So even if you've listened to the episodes, chances are there will be something extra in the write-up. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and want to listen to many hours of fascinating conversations with the biggest movers and shakers in the world of effective altruism, I would put in a strong recommendation for the 80,000 Hours podcast. The uh, link is in the show notes for that. Also, we would be really grateful if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It's probably the most effective way of getting people to find out about the show. If you have constructive feedback, we now have a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form. Or you can just drop us an email. That's feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you would like to support the show more directly, you can also leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening.